Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, uh, guys, it's good to have you back another week. We have a special guest on the show with us this week. Uh, he's been on before. He's not really that special um, in in the sense of it's it's not about him. It's about Christ. And he's going to tell you that today. And uh, for our viewers who listen to us regularly, they'll recognize that that's almost a quote from something Eki said on a podcast uh, several episodes ago. <laughs> Um, it's actually my wife's favorite statement now. Uh, Eki was you're not basically that important. Get over it. Saying, "Yeah, <laughs> you're not that important. Get over yourself." Uh, one of the counseling it. sessions. So, um, and that's true. The podcast is not about any of us. Um, and Kyle's gonna—he's written a good book about this, actually. Um, and so, Kyle, uh, you've been on the show before, so guys know you. They know you from Redeemer, probably most of the guys who listen to us. But just real quick, uh, for, for those who maybe don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're serving, uh, the, the church there, and then we're going to get into the reason you're on the show with us today. You've just recently written a new book. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you guys. Thanks again for having me back. And my name is Kyle Swanson. I am uh, a pastor and elder on staff at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Our lead pastor is John Benzinger, and uh, we just have a fantastic team of men who are like-minded and, and humble and work together towards the common goal of glorifying Jesus and and helping Jesus uh, be known to our congregation and to anyone who wants to listen into our podcast and things. So uh, we have uh, about 2000 people at our church here in Gilbert. We have a really small campus. And so we do five services on the weekend. It's a really busy time, but it's, mm. it's also wow. a wonderful time. Uh, I live in Gilbert, Arizona, and, and actually technically in East Mesa, Arizona with my wife, Jackie. And um, actually, since the last time I was on the show, we had a daughter. And so she's now eight oh, months wow. old. And uh, so we've been really enjoying her. Her name is Lucy. And uh, so we're we're here in Arizona doing ministry together. Our church has a, a ministry called uh, Redeeming Truth Media. So we have the Redeeming Truth podcast, and uh, we've started a pastoral blog, and we're going to be publishing books and things like that. Just an exciting time uh, to be in ministry here and, and honoring the Lord with whatever uh, gifts and mediums we can. Amen. Well, I'm sad it's been eight months since we've had you back on, but um, it At sounds like your life's flies, been plenty man. full. Well, yeah, you've moved, you've changed states, time flies. It's crazy. Well, brother, um, you you mentioned that you guys have a podcast. It, uh, what what's the name of that again for for the listeners? Because I would encourage them to go and and make themselves um, sign up, subscribe, listen to your stuff. It's good <laughs> stuff. It'd be helpful for yeah. Folks. The easiest place to find it really is just on YouTube, and and it's under our church channel. So it's Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona, and the podcast is called the Redeeming Truth Podcast. And uh, we're not quite as regular as you guys. Uh, you, you've surpassed us in number of episodes, which is awesome. Um, but we're, we're probably up in the 130s or so, 140s in episodes. Uh, we've been going for about three years. 
uh, we kind of do somewhere between a, a, a medium and long form, you know, sometimes our, some, some earlier episodes were, you know, 10 to 12 minutes, uh, just kind of little nuggets of truth for the church. And some of them have gone as long as an hour and a half. Uh, it really just depends on the topic and, uh, you know, either our guests or what is prevalent for our church. And what we really wanted to do uh, because of our small campus and the fact that our we had to shorten our service times and kind of shorten our fellowship times to get everybody in and out, we ran out of opportunities to address certain topics uh, of concern for our church body, either in patio ministries or during the service. And so we wanted another opportunity, another platform to speak to our congregation and by God's grace, the audience has grown uh, online because just of the the content. And it was kind of during COVID, we we really put our foot down uh, on the gas pedal and creating content and gained an audience online, which we it, we couldn't care less about numbers. But what we recognize is the online space is a mission field. And it's a mission field where four or five billion people live. Uh, and you have easy access to them and it's flooded with bad teaching. And so we just wanted to do our part to counter that bad teaching and and fill the online space with truth, uh, just like you guys are. And, uh, you know, God is going to do what he does with that content. Uh, so we don't care about, you know, our our size or our name or our popularity. We just want to honor the Lord with whatever medium he's given us. Yeah. yeah, and I just I, I just want to testify <clears throat> to your church because um, Kyle and I go back to seminary. In fact, I, I know a number of people on staff, Jeremiah Dennis, in addition mm-hmm. to Kyle and John Benzinger, Dale Thakrez out there, and Daryl Harrison just joined you guys, and yeah. uh, a number of other great guys out there. But um, I brought men from our church out to Gilbert, Arizona to some of their events. Uh, Kyle, you, you head up uh, the, the conferencing mm-hmm. aspect, don't you? I do. Yeah. It's a privilege to, I love, I don't know what it is. I love putting on events. Uh, I think there's a, just a, a built-in hospitality bug in me that I love to see people come and be served and enjoy time together. And I'd rather be the one putting that on than participating. So I just, I just, I love doing that. Yeah. So we, we've brought um, our men out there for men's events. The women have gone out there for women's events and it's been a wonderful edifying time. The people there are so welcoming. And I know that's that's just a product of of the wonderful preaching and teaching and shepherding that's going on out there. So, um, great place to be if you're anywhere in the vicinity of Gilbert, Arizona, and you're wondering about a place to go and attend and and make make yourself home. That that'll be a place I would highly recommend. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kyle, let let's jump into the the reason you're on the show today. Other than just that you're a great guy, and we like to hear what you have to say because it's good stuff. Um, but you've written a book. So why, why don't you just kind of jump in? What, what's the name of your book? Where can people find the book? And then maybe just kind of give us um, some background history. I, I know you actually have some of that in the book, but you know what caused you to want to write this book? What was your um, hope and intention behind it? And maybe even um, you know, you've preached through some of this. Uh, what are some of the fruits of, of it you've already seen in the lives of people? Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, I, I'm warning you now, you've given me free reign and I'm a preacher with a microphone. So I'm going to go <laughs> off a little bit, but this is the book right here. Uh, it's called Isaiah's Great Light, uh, The Salvation of God in the Servant Songs. 
and uh, yeah, Nathaniel's got his copy and uh, a beautiful cover art uh, by a very good friend of mine, an artist and a musician named Sarah Sparks. Uh, her name now is Sarah Sparks Komatsu, but she kind of still goes by Sarah Sparks in the artist world. So um, she had done, I knew her from when I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. She was out there studying. She ended up marrying a very good friend of mine and now they live in Maui. Uh, which is cool because that's where he was from. And she is a singer-songwriter, as I said, and is a wonderful artist. And she had done these kind of stained glass window images. You can find them on her website. I think it's sarahsparksmusic.com, or if you look up that up, you'll find her. And uh, we we use those images in our worship center kind of on some windows because we don't have stained glass, right? Our building was built in the 80s. There's no style to it. So we put those on there and they're these beautiful kind of vinyl pictures uh, that that represent God, man, sin, and or I'm sorry, um, uh, that's uh, um, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are the themes. Mm. And uh, so I love them so much that when I was it was coming time for the book, I had this image in my head of what I wanted and it kind of looked like some of her imagery. And so I asked her to create that. And, and I just think she did such a great job of showcasing really the title of the book with, with that image that want, that that draws you in. And I had this idea that a book that is aesthetically pleasing, that feels good in your hands, that has a good typeface, that, that is put together well is going to be much more appealing as well that has great cover art. And so she was gracious enough to do that for me. Well, she's also a singer-songwriter. And so she wrote a song in the, at the end of the book. It's, it's The section is called A New Song, and the song is called The Light. And she actually released it on the same day the book came out. She's got this wow. great following uh, on Spotify. And anyway, so I would encourage you guys to go and listen, anyone who's watching, and enjoy her music and her art. But really, the genesis of this book came from a sermon series that I preached here at Redeemer Bible Church. Now, even before that, uh, Eki can remember that we were in uh, a class together in seminary called uh, The Exposition of Isaiah with Dr. Greg Harris. And it was a wonderful time in studying under Dr. Harris, who is just one of the kindest, most gracious, and most subtly brilliant expositors you'll ever meet. Yes, and he, yes. he caused a love for the book of Isaiah. I took that class because it was a bit of a, a dark space in my mind in understanding the Bible. Uh, I, I wasn't as familiar with Isaiah. And I left that class deeply familiar with Isaiah and really in love with uh, the writing. And the more that I learned about uh, the person of Isaiah, his work, his ministry. I, I, I just saw the sovereign hand of God. I saw the grace of God uh, and I saw the gospel. It is the, the pre-gospel of the Old Testament. We have the proto-gospel in Genesis 3, but the exposition of what the gospel would be and who the Messiah would be uh, comes so clearly in Isaiah. And so in that class, I had the opportunity to write a, a research paper and to prepare a sermon. And I chose Isaiah 49 because I was enamored with this idea that the servant would come and extend the gospel to all the nations. Mm. And so I, I I put that together. I preached that. I, I, I ended up teaching that at several different places over the years just because it was such an encouraging study. And when I came to Redeemer and it came time to be in the teaching rotation, uh, I wanted to expound on that and get into all of the servant songs. 
So for those of you who don't know, the servant songs are four uh, prophetic kind of poetic songs that were written to uh, alert Judah that the Messiah was coming and what he would look like and where he would come and what his ministry would be like. And they're, they're in the second half of the book. So if you've only read Isaiah till about chapter 30, because you got so sick of all the judgment and it was hard to, to read, you got to keep reading because you pass Isaiah 35, which kind of yeah. ends the major sections on judgment. You get into this incredible historical interlude. It's the only historical interlude that happens three times in the Bible. And I think it's done to demonstrate the covenant love of God for his people. And that is when um, Assyria attacks Jerusalem and God rescues Jerusalem because of uh, uh, King Hezekiah's repentance. Uh, and so, and, and his asking him for help. And so you get past that. And from chapter 40 to chapter 66, you really are in a section that is primarily defined by blessing. It is God uh, teaching Israel about who he is, his character, about the Messiah and about their salvation, and then about their reconciliation at the end. And so being in a section primarily that is uh, designed for blessing, right? Isaiah 40 begins with comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to mm -hmm. Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And really that sets the tone for the rest of the book. And so going from there to Isaiah 42, which is where the first song happens, we see God announcing, behold, we see him talking about Israel having been the servant, the servant who was blind and deaf, who failed in their mission to glorify Yahweh to the nations. And so uh, Yahweh shows up on the scene then, and he says, behold, my servant will act wisely. He will come and he will establish justice and righteousness, and he will be humble and meek and gracious and strong, and he will accomplish everything that I send him to do. And so we're, we're given this preview of this incredible character, and we're not really told who he is. It's just that he's the servant. Yeah. And then uh, each song has... You know, and, and scholars can disagree on this. This is not a scholarly work. It's a pastoral work for the church to encourage people. But each song, whether it's four, verse, four verses or five or six or eight, has uh, what's called a tailpiece. So it's like the, the mood shifts from the song to kind of an exposition of Isaiah saying, based on all of that, these are some blessings that come. And so we see that in Isaiah 42. We see that in Isaiah 49 where the servant then is announced that his ministry is not just going to be local to uh, Israel and to Judah, but that his salvation is going to extend to all the nations of the earth. Then we get into Isaiah 50 verses four to nine, and we see that the Messiah would come, but he would be rejected. He would be cursed by his people. He would mm. suffer hardship, but yet he would set his face uh, like Flint and that he would accomplish his mm. mission with resolve and then we get into the last song, which is the most famous and the most well-known in Isaiah 52 verses 13 to 15. And then all of Isaiah 53, which is the famous song of the suffering servant. And it outlines for us that he would be, he was despised and rejected. He suffered at the hands of his, his captors, that he was uh, scorned and rejected and that he was ultimately put to death. But that in that, that God would multiply his blessings. He would prolong his days. His ministry would have an everlasting effect and he would establish his kingdom forever. And then flowing out of that with this idea of the, these tailpieces to the song, what I began to recognize is that I believe anyway, that Isaiah did this purposefully, that though the first three songs had short tailpieces that just kind of expounded on the theme, 
because of the magnitude of what the servant accomplished in Isaiah 53, I believe the remainder of the book is a tailpiece expounding on the glories of that song. Mm -hmm. And so it's like Isaiah just breaks forth in in, in exultation and he can't stop himself. There's moments where he stops himself to remind Judah that they're still going to be judged, but then he goes right back into their salvation, right back into what God is going to do for them and how he's going to establish this new heavens and new earth. And it's the glory of it. The wonder of it is just beyond comprehension. And it goes so against this paradigm that some, that many of us grew up thinking that the old Testament was all, you know, fire and brimstone and, you know, uh, you know, row your, your oar and, you know, somebody's whipping you and God's angry. And then the God that showed up in the new Testament was finally gracious and kind. But what I wanted to show people in this book from having eight sermons, 50,000 words of manuscript preaching uh, and a, and a deep dive into a study that, that really touched my heart in a way that, that I didn't expect. I wanted to share that with everyone, not ending just in a sermon series, but creating a resource that would last uh, for the church, just to bless the church. And again, however God wants to use it, he's going to use it. But I hope and pray that it glorifies him and shows everyone that God's character is unchanging and that he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant love for his people. You know, I, I find that um, most Christians are not as comfortable with the Old Testament as the New, and, and especially you get into these prophetic books. Um, when you did that sermon series— what was the, um, some of the feedback that you got from those who were blessed to be able to listen to it all? Yeah, a lot of it was, I had no idea. I, I had no idea that that Isaiah could be this exciting and joyful. I thought it would be sort of like a weird kind of a nerdy historical trudge through you know cultures I don't understand. And what I wanted people to see was that this is the foundation of their heritage as Christians, mm. The gospel is so incredibly clear uh, in so far that I believe reading Isaiah, especially in that time, one could could come to faith in that Messiah. And I believe that's the story of Timothy. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, you know, you who from your youth were acquainted with the scriptures that were uh, able, that were wise mm -hmm. to make you, uh, or that were able to make you wise to salvation. And from Timothy's youth, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, you know, so it was either oral tradition from the apostles. But I think when he's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the written Old Testament. And I believe specifically about the scroll of Isaiah, because if you read these servant songs and God is illuminating your heart, then you are you can be made wise to place your faith in this figure, the Messiah, for your salvation mm -hmm. in the exact same manner that we can read the new Testament and without the illumination and help of God, it can mean very little to us, or it is the power of God unto salvation. And the only difference is we have the name and the ministry laid out for us of that servant who is Jesus Christ. All scripture points to that person. It's not all, he's not in every passage, right? We're not preaching that, but the whole old Testament points to Christ. And then the whole new Testament blows out his ministry to the world. Yeah. And so I, I want people to see that and know that and know that their entire salvation history and heritage is is founded in these incredibly beautiful and wonderful works in the Old Testament and specifically in this book focused on Isaiah.
Well, now, it really you sounds said... like... Oh, go ahead. Okay, go go ahead, ahead oh, oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, it really sounds like one of the things you're communicating is that we should not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's incredibly <laughs> valuable. Well, you know, I did ask that question in at the end of the first sermon of this series. I said, I mean, and I, I mean, I was, I was fiery in this series. I was, I was to borrow, you know, the, the, a term from the guy who wrote my forward, I was Lawson-esque because I believed everything about what God was doing in this text. And it is magnificent. And I can't, you can't just say like, isn't that magnificent? It's like, isn't that magnet? Can you see the glory of God, the magnitude of what Mm. God has done? Do you still think that we should unhitch from the old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely got yeah. some feedback from that one in a positive and, way. And I think, you know, where that phrase comes from is really not important, but just the idea that a lot of believers, um, you know, would consider the new Testament to be basically our Bible, right? It's today's part of the Bible. You know, once you, if you go before Matthew, like Malachi back, you know, maybe Genesis is important, but everything in between there, uh, you know, we don't need to know that. It's it's not as important as the New Testament. Um, I, I want to talk about the beginning of your book because, I, you know, as I was reading through it, um, I was like, wow, this is unusual. It's a it's a book about Isaiah, and he's, he's giving me like a hermeneutics lesson in the front. <laughs> and I thought, man, that is so, so good. Um, because, you know, you know, people in the pew, your everyday Christian, they work 50, 60 hours a week. They haven't had a hermeneutics class. They haven't thought about probably, um, the, the, the things that you've addressed here that you need to consider when looking at, Mm. um, really any book of the Bible, you know, things like context, the, the history of it, the, the setting. And then I can't remember exactly where it is, but you bring out, um, the fact that we need to be considering what the original audience was thinking and understanding from the text. So just talk to us a little bit about like what what made you decide to kind of help the audience really learn how to just read their Bibles in general. Because if people were to buy this book and they just get through the first, uh, the introduction into the first chapter, it, you've really just helped them learn how to read all of Scripture in in, mm. in that way. Yeah, well, praise God for that. Uh, I, I one of my roles here at Redeemer is I, I I teach much of our classroom curriculum. So I've in I've I've come up with a system of classes. It's about fifteen classes at the moment. Um, about two and a half years of classes that we take people through that expose people first and foremost to Scripture. We do surveys of Scripture and we expose them to every page of the Bible. And then I teach uh, classes on. Uh, hermeneutics. So it's called rightly dividing the word. And I want to teach people how to interpret the Bible for for themselves. And then one called rightly knowing the word, which is uh, the process of inductive Bible study. So we spend the first year of these classes just looking at the Bible and how to study it. You know, and many people who would want to indoctrinate would start with theology. I'm going to teach you systematic theology. And I don't think that's sinful or wrong, but I, I do think it's a somewhat misguided. We want to build the foundation first and foremost on scripture. Yeah. And I can't do that with people if I don't give them the same tools that I've been given. And hermeneutics is really just a bag of tools. It helps you to understand. I mean, and so often we do this where we'll just open to a page of scripture and read it and think somehow the spirit's going to teach me when I know nothing about what I'm reading. 
I don't know when it was written, who wrote it, who was the audience, why are they writing, what were the problems they were addressing, you know, and, and then you, you get to Isaiah and, you know, one of the confusing things about reading the prophets is understanding voice. Who is talking? Is Isaiah talking? Is God talking? Are the people talking? Are the enemies talking? And if we don't understand that, then it's, it's kind of like if I gave you a screenplay for a movie or a stage play and I took out all the character names or who was talking and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. I, like I'd be just as lost. But what we have in that, if you've ever seen a Hollywood script is it says like the characters, it, it'll show you like a paragraph that says the setting and it'll say the character's name and here's their lines. And then here's the next character and their lines. Well, the Old Testament prophets were not written that way. But they're written that way, right? They're, they don't give us that info, but the info is buried, embedded in the text. We just have to deduce based on, okay, it's written in the second person here speaking about Israel, or it's written in the first person speaking about the servant. We can figure out who's talking, but we need to do the little bit of investigative work to do that. And until that is done, the picture is unclear, which is why so often... Isaiah 53 has been misapplied to the church today as now as, as exclusively to the church today. Now I address in, in the last chapter of the book, the uses of those songs in the new Testament. So I don't deny that those songs apply to the church. They do, but that doesn't mean they don't apply to their original audience and their original context. And when we see something like who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, uh, he was despised and rejected. Who is speaking? And if we don't know this, we're going to assume and we're going to impose on the text a voice that wasn't intended. And so it, it's important to do that. And so when we do that, and then, so I started talking about that in the sermons and pretty much every sermon I was talking about context and history, just to pull everyone back in and remind everyone where we were. And so instead of doing that in every chapter of the book, I just decided we need to have a chapter that explains and sets the ground rules for all of these things. Because if they understand my heart, not to impose my interpretation or meaning of the text onto them, but just to show these are the rules that we follow across all scripture. Uh, we got to look at the original historical context, the author, the audience, the language, the grammar, the the problems that you know from progressive uh, uh from 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 the progress of history what are they facing from progressive revelation when was it written what were they expected to know um what had they rejected at the time you know why what is this go what's going on here and so you know to to understand all of those things just brings such incredible clarity to the exposition of the text itself. And that's one thing I think Eki and I learned a lot from Dr. Harris is he he built this, this structure to, to demystify this very, as Daryl Harrison said in his endorsement, this magisterial work and to make it approachable and, and understandable for any level of Christian understanding. Because we know that all scripture is profitable and God breathed, including Isaiah, which can be very intimidating and hard to understand unless you have the right tools. And I've read wonderful other books. In fact, I've got one right here. That was one of my inspirations for di diving deeper into this study. It's um, Brian Russell, um, a wonderful theologian, uh, Behold My Servant, excellent exposition. Uh, now, he took a few different approaches on voice and 
and prophetic aspect and fulfillment on things. And I never understood why, because he didn't explain why. Uh, but I do understand because of his spiritual heritage background, but I wanted to lay very clearly out for the reader. This is why we've come to the understanding that we have about Isaiah. It's not about us uh, um, being faithful to a system of theology. It's about being faithful to this, to a consistent process and practice of hermeneutics and exposition across the board. Yeah, I love that approach. I mean, hermeneutics is at the baseline of everything. I mean, even as I've taught uh, biblical counseling, you know, you've got that pyramid, and the pyramid can be drawn in so many different ways. But that bottom, that bottom layer in the pyramid, it's always hermeneutics. And from your hermeneutics, you get your exegesis. And by the way, when we say hermeneutics, we're talking about the principles of Bible interpretation. Um, then you get your exegesis, which is what you interpret from it. And then from there, you get your biblical theology and then your systematic theology. If you try mm -hmm. just try to dive into systematic theology. Uh, while skipping the other levels underneath, while well, you're you're missing something, you're you're really being told what to think in, in a sense, rather than being taught how to think. And yeah, the the, the hermeneutics is foundational. And and you you mentioned kind of um, some different schools of, of of thinking. There's some different schools of hermeneutics, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. You and I, we both believe that the Old Testament it stands on its own, and it was completed by the New Testament. It does not get reinterpreted by the new test by the New Testament. And so I, th I think that's very important for people to consider when they're coming to Scripture. Um, do they believe that the original audience um, that received these prophecies in the Old Testament, do, do we believe that God intended for them to um, understand it um, in their context and that the promises made directly to them would be upheld and kept? And certainly we, we believe that. Um, now, you, you mentioned something uh, earlier, and I wanted to loop back to it. You said this book was... Uh, not so much academic, but pastoral. Can you help our audience understand the difference there? Yeah. Uh, so there are lots of books written on Isaiah, uh, either commentaries or, you know, kind of deep uh, textual studies that approach it more from a, we're going to solve a, uh, maybe a problem that, that academia has faced and, and failed to understand and existing kind of up here in that gray space ether of scholasticism. And those books can be wonderful, but they can also be very intimidating. And from a pastoral sense, what I wanted to do in the sermon series, and one thing that is is built into the ethos of our team here at Redeemer, is to speak to the room as if there's guests who don't understand. And so we don't want to just assume everyone understands what transubstantiation means or what, you know, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, noetic effects of sin, like we can use these yeah. terms, but we need to explain them. Mm -hmm. And so in what we've done in, in over the years is kind of develop this style and approach to, to, to taking meet the meeting the audience where they are and then expecting a little bit more of them, but not knowing the audience is here and, and preaching up here because you're going to lose half of them on the journey to try to catch up to you instead, turn around and bring them with you. And so I think that's a good principle for any preacher. Uh, no, you don't have to do that by any means, but I think that the, the people in your congregation will benefit greatly from that. And so in this book, I wanted to make it enticing and exciting and interesting because it is all of those things. It is one of the greatest epics of all time playing out in the book of Isaiah. But I, I didn't want to scare people with the kind of 
dry academic approaches to, oh, well, in the ancient Near East culture, blah, blah, that's all fine. But how do we say that in a way that pulls people into the story? Nobody cared about ancient Rome until Gladiator came out, right? And then they're sucked into this story <laughs> about this incredible guy who did these things and you're seeing it in play. And, and it, it's not, that's, that's an example right there. It's not high history. And of course, they fudged on history a little bit. But it was it drew the audience in and caused you to care about these characters. And so that's what I mean from a pastor's heart. I want people to care about Isaiah. He was a man. He was he was a member of the royal household on some level. And he was called to the most difficult job in the history of the world out of his comfort zone in order to call his nation to judgment. And he agreed you know, and then his, yeah. his, his we, we learn a little bit about his family, his dad, his wife, his kids. And so it it humanizes him. And then it, it puts us in the context of his culture. Now he's kind of this outsider who's calling all of these complacent, you know, um, uh, pagan or not pagan, but just disobedient rulers, these kings and these royals to obedience. And they're just like looking at him like he's nuts. You know, God says all these things and we're fine. It's been hundreds of years. Nothing's going to happen, you know, and he's being rejected and he's actually in a sense, a proto Christ in that sense. He's, he's like a, 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 a type where he's sacrificially going out and, and sharing the, the gospel and there, and he's being rejected. And, and so to, to establish for the people, this view that these are people who existed in nations, in places, in time and history that God dealt with, uh, with a very direct, but a you know, and judgmental, but a very gentle and guiding and loving hand. Uh, I wanted people to see that, and then to share with them, like, do you not see how incredible the work that the Messiah did for you, and that God laid this out—that it's the same God that you and I worship on Sunday mornings in church. Mm. It's not a different version of Him. I want to instill confidence in the text, uh, but to do so in a way that shepherds people towards the truth, not just you know, kind of academically lays out the yeah. truth. Uh, both approaches are fine. And a lot of those academic books are great for us on the pastoral level, because we can take and then digest those things and then share those with a pathos to our people that calls them to the same level of excitement and belief that we have. Um, but that's that thing. I had to digest it and, and put it in that manner for the church so that they could, uh, they could find it um, agreeable in the same manner that I have. Mm. So, Kyle, you, you've given us some background. We've talked about Isaiah in, in general, talked about the book in general. In, in the little bit of time we have left, I wonder if you would mind just sort of giving the audience a little bit of glimpse in into what they would discover in, in reading through the book. So you, you've, you've gone through the four songs, right? So maybe just take a couple minutes and 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 whatever you want to highlight from each song, um, just to yeah. kind of whet the appetite, uh, so people will will just have a little bit of, yeah, I, I want to dig into that more because I, I've I've gone through uh, I I got through most of the book and it really is incredible uh, and I would highly recommend it uh, to people. We were talking, uh, you know, just before we started recording, and I was like, I, I think I want to take my people through it as a book study. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's just it is so really so really good. Uh, but give us a couple minutes, maybe of, of each of the songs, just kind of whet our appetite for for what's in here. 
Sure. Well, the book is only good because the source material is so perfect and excellent and amazing. Amen. And I mean, again, I preached a series through this and I just didn't want the study to end. And I, I, I think it deserved more than um, a one-time, you know, moment in our church's life. And, and yeah, we've got them recorded, but, you know, to write it and to share that with as many people as possible. And so I'm so grateful that you guys uh, enjoy it and, and that you want to share it as well. Um, going back to something Eki said uh, that, you know, these texts were written to a people in an audience. And we want to understand that. Uh, a line that I quote in the book is from Matthew Wehmeyer, wonderful Bible expositor, scholar, pastor, extraordinaire. Uh, I want to be like him one day. Um, but one of his famous lines from uh, hermeneutics class was, a text can never mean now what it didn't mean it didn't then. Mean then. Yep. And if we break that down and if we if we disbelieve that statement, okay, if, if it, it doesn't mean now to me, like I can't say what does this mean to me because it didn't mean that to the original audience. If we don't believe that, then we actually believe in an in a circular nonsensical pattern because I can make the, if the text has changed or if it means whatever I want it to mean, then it doesn't it's meaningless to the original audience. And if it's meaningless to the original audience than enlist to me, no matter what meaning I impose on it. And I know that's kind of a deeply philosophical, weird thing to say, but we have to be so careful at understanding those things. And so we understand, I, I'm not just reading Isaiah in, in light of what I've experienced in my life and where I am in progressive history, but I need to read it in light of where they were in progressive history and what it would have what it would have stoked in their imaginations, in their hearts, in their wrath, in their repentance, whatever it was. And so every song, I think, I think God purposed every song to be topical on some level. And so the first song in Isaiah 42 is just an exposure of who this servant is. Actually, that there is going to be a servant. Israel failed as the servant. There, my servant's coming, and he is going to do this perfectly. He's going to execute justice and righteousness in the world. And when we say justice, we do not mean social justice. We do not mean our version of justice. We mean God's justice, which is the word mishpat is the word for law, for the, the, the Bible. So it's, it's like, if we put it in the terms of James, the Messiah is going to be the ultimate doer of the word. He is going to magnify for you what it means to live the word. And then he is going to establish righteousness. He's going to bring about a perfect righteous kingdom. And so we're, we're given this first preview of God's redemptive plan that is coming. And we don't know quite yet when, although they will in a few hundred years when they get the prophecies from Daniel of the timeline. But um, but they're getting this first preview from Isaiah 42. Then you get into Isaiah 49. Now, there's material in between that expounds on that and kind of builds the hope. Then you get into Isaiah 49. And it's, he opens up the servant. It's actually the servant speaking. He says, listen up, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Now, this is a global address. It's not just uh, God speaking to the nation of Judah here. This is now global. And, you know, it says the Lord formed me in the womb. He knew me and he, he, he made me like a polished arrow and he hid me in his quiver. And there's this language of like, he made me a precise weapon that would be unleashed at the exact time. And, and, and he's going to accomplish his will through what he does through me. And then, you know, God comes back in, in his voice and he says, you know, uh, you know, 
the the um the servant says the one who formed me says and he he says it is too small a thing for my servant to be sent just to redeem you know the the people of 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 Israel and redeem the tribe of Jacob instead i will extend my salvation to all the nations so that the light of the gospel can reach the farthest ends of the earth uh and so that's this incredible promise that the gospel is for all the nations then in isaiah 50 it kind of goes back to the the view of the life of Christ. Now the Messiah has arrived, the servant has arrived, and it's talking about how he would be rejected, how he would be scorned, how he would face ridicule. And yet at the same time, he would set his gaze, like he would fix his eyes on accomplishing the mission. And if we read Hebrews 12, what what does it say that Jesus did? It says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, um, uh, you know, he's looking beyond the cross. He looked past the cross and saw the joy that would come to him in the redemption of his people. And so that was foreshadowed in Isaiah 50 verses four to nine. And then in Isaiah 52, the end of that 13 to 15 and the rest of Isaiah 53, we see the actual confession of Israel. Now it's interesting because this hasn't happened yet. So we have a future audience who sees the risen Christ return, the glorified Christ at his second coming confessing back to his first coming and it's written for an audience in between. So uh, it's like these back to the future moments where you have to figure out like who's talking and what's the aspect and where is it going on kind of in this flow. But it's this future song looking back at the first audience going like, we didn't even believe he just grew up before us like a tender shoot, like this mm-hmm. little, very unimpressive man who he had no stately form or majesty. Well, like we should, we didn't see, we were looking for something else. And yet, even so, he was despised and rejected. He by by his stripes we've been healed. And you know, his he will sprinkle the nations clean and and God will multiply his days and his he will prolong his and then he'll establish this kingdom. And so you see this remarkable kind of full confession of all of redemptive history sung by this future audience about this past audience to the current audience, you know, and and then finally, in the last chapter, I all of the, the songs are quoted in the New Testament. So instead of admitting or saying, admitting defeat that the, the New Testament reinterprets the old, we admit that the New Testament writers had apostolic authority to recraft the old in a new context for that context. But the mm-hmm. original context remains the same. And so the, the original context was this, and it was expanded to this in first Peter where much of Isaiah 53 was attributed to our hearts, but on an individual level at our moment of salvation, whereas the song is actually a song of corporate repentance by all national Israel in the future. So there's this multi-pronged fulfillment. And I think that speaks to the mystery that Paul speaks about of these, these mysteries of, of revelation that come to us, you know, as history progresses. And so that's, that's kind of a, a small preview. And really I just, I do want people to be excited and encouraged and just blown away by Christ from this book. Well, you have mentioned two of some of my favorite professors, Dr. Harris, Dr. Waymeyer. Um, great and and very, uh, it's almost criminal that people don't know these these two expositors better because they're they're absolutely excellent. So I totally agree with you. And 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 just to add to to what you're saying for for our audience, I mean. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets that we have. And, and I remember one of my professors, and it may have been Dr. Harris, who, who said, um, 
that that Isaiah uh, is is really a, a mirror of the entire Bible. I mean, even right down to the numbers, you think about it, the Old Testament is 39 books, well, the first major section of Isaiah is 39 chapters, and then the last 27 chapters is all about the grace of God, the glory of God through this Messiah, and we've got 27 books in the New Testament that that mirror that. And then not only that, when we think about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the great discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which really validated our method of preserving the text, which really God does by his power. Um, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which were scrolls that dated before Christ, were fragments of several books throughout the entire Old Testament, but it included Isaiah in its entirety. So that was the one book that we had in its entirety, and it validated that the book that we have now in Isaiah is exactly what the Jews had even before Christ. Because up until that point, the, the book of Isaiah is so clear in pointing to Christ that some actually thought it was modified by Christians in order to make it more Christ-centric. Um, but when they discovered it back then, what we had now is just pretty much dead on. So a, a great uh, a great book, a great study. I, I preached through the Gospel of John, and John traces back to Isaiah more than any other prophetic book. So definitely very extremely relevant. Um, it's going to enrich your heart in your understanding of the gospel. And we as believers, the more we grow, um, the more deep we should be getting into the gospel. That's why I keep telling our church, our, our love and our appreciation and, and our desire for sharing the gospel, knowing the gospel should continue to grow as we mature. It's not something we move past. Amen. Yeah, I think one of the things I appreciated about your book, Kyle, is that it just reminds us that God has had the same plan for all of eternity. It mm -hmm. wasn't that there was a plan A and then something messed it up, and so now there's a plan B. Um, you, you know, you mentioned the the, the Proto Evangelion, the from Genesis, um, but then you you come to Isaiah and you just have it so clearly here. And so, yeah, for, for Christians to read your book, and I, I mean, there's just so much good material here, but to walk away with the understanding that, you know what, we have a God who, this was always his plan to, to, to redeem his people um, mm -hmm. through the, the Messiah. Um, yeah, incredible. A, a good reminder, fantastic book. Yeah, the, the, the art on the front is great, and the book, <laughs> I don't know, the I don't know what this, uh, what what the material is, but it feels so smooth and velvety. Like I don't know, um, it, it's a weird feeling. I just want to keep touching it, but um, <laughs> but but what makes the book obviously is is the content, and I think you've you know done a masterful job of opening opening up the truth of Isaiah to the people in the pew, um, and so you know, uh, thank you for taking the time to do that. I, I know it was born out of your own love for just the word and wanting to dive into it. And of course, God's called you to minister to his people. And so uh, I think you've done a good job of, of that. Um, any last encouragements or thoughts you would want to give someone um, con concerning what you've written here, just your passion for Isaiah? Um, yeah. If someone was like, okay, I it, tell me just, is there just a little more? Um, <laughs> get, gives, give something to us. Well, as Eki noted in the gospel of John, Isaiah is quoted so often. Um, Jesus, I think two favorite books were Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And so yeah. 
if Jesus, our Savior and Lord and King, loved the Old Testament, we should love the Old Testament and, and realize that there's beneficial truth in there for us. It adds context. It adds clarity. Uh, you know, I was thinking back to, you know, the fact that Jesus' very title given to him, you know, uh, is Emmanuel, God with us, right? Mm. And I was thinking back to, um, it's First Samuel chapter 3. Uh, um, I've, I've got it here. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You ever stop and think about that? Mm. That the appearance of God in the flesh was normal from the pre-judges time. And we see that in the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac, uh, Jacob, uh, Joshua, various times where the Lord appears. And he's 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 not necessarily just fellowshipping with man. He's helping guide and lead and and um and give encouragement and give direction and those kind of things. But there was no frequent vision of the word of the Lord. And as we know, the word of the Lord became flesh and is Christ. And so the fact that that was sort of relatively normal pre, you know, 1000 BC, and then it didn't become normal again until Jesus was born, but it was predicted because they had so many years of it not being normal until Isaiah prophesied, you know, three, 400 years that the word is going to come again. And he's going to come in this perfect servant form that you've never seen before. Mm. And he is going to redeem you and he is going to rescue you. And mm. so this heart of God that it, despite 700 years of covenant disobedience and failure mm. and a, a perfect holy God could have just smote his people, yeah. right? And to, to use Old Testament parlance, but um, instead he says, no, I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you and for, all for my glory, but for your good. And so my encouragement to you is if you're hurting, if this is one of those seasons where you just don't feel the heart of the Lord and, and, you know, Christmas, it's, this is such a perfect Advent study, mm. but perhaps Christmas season is not joyful for you that this book in prayer and in communion with God will, my desire is that it will stoke your heart to see and savor Christ and to know and understand the loving heart of your father in heaven. And if that, if that's the case in your heart, please use that for that reason. And if you know anyone who is going through those things, please get them a copy. If you, I'll, I'll send you a copy. I'll send you the PDF for free. It's not about money. By the way, we don't make money writing books anyway. Um, but if you need a copy, reach out to me. If you can't afford one, I'll give you one. But, hmm. um, I would love for you to be able to share that. And if you can buy one or buy two, share them with your, your family and friends and just help support the work of the ministry. I don't make any money off of this, but it does help keep it going. Um, so I'm grateful for the time to come on and chat with you guys. And, and I hope your audience can just see my heart is, is to help people to know Christ more and to be excited uh, beyond what they could possibly comprehend about what God has in store for them as his children. Kyle, thank you for joining us today and um, for you guys listening. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. We don't do a whole lot of book reviews, but this one you you, you want to get. It, it's not you know, it, it's not just a, a how-to book. I mean, this is really an exposition of Scripture, right? Um, and, and so you're diving into 
not Kyle Swanson's thoughts and imagination and, you know, clever sayings. You're, you're diving into a, a labor of love that's an exposition of scripture. Um, it, probably not by chance you released it near Christmas, but it certainly is providential. You're on our show just before um, <laughs> Christmas. And so because that wasn't planned. Um, and so it, 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 it's a great time because lots of churches, their scripture reading is going to include, you know, Isaiah 53. Right. Um, and so you're listening to that and you're thinking, wow, I'd really like to dig more into that. I only hear that once a year. Um, well, mm. now you can get a book and, and you can just learn uh, all about Isaiah, the background history, the 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 rest of Isaiah 53, because there's more than just that one chapter we read right um, during Christmas time. So we'll put a link to this, uh, to, to the book in the show notes. We'll put a link to uh, Redeemer, uh, whatever other information we get from Kyle. So check it out. Um, and uh, as always, if you didn't know, we have a YouTube channel. So you can see Kyle's really cool glasses that he wears and and uh, on our YouTube channel. And uh, some of us have a face <laughs> for radio. I fall in that category. Some of us are a little more pleasing to the eye. So we're glad to have you on, Kyle. Um, I'll invite them on next time. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to get him to, to blush a little but anyway. So guys, thank you. We hope that the podcast has been helpful to you. Hit the subscribe button and don't forget to send us an email if uh, this is if God's used this in your life. We want to know. Um, send Kyle an email and Redeemer if you read their book and and you know God uses it in your life. I'm sure they would love to rejoice in what the Lord's doing uh, with that. So until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.